So keep your Bibles open this morning to, uh, to John 16, 5 through 11. I want to tell you about uh, Edwin Hatch. Edwin Hatch was uh, born September the 4th, 1835, and died November the 10th, 1889. He graduated from two of the most prestigious universities in the world, both Cambridge and Oxford in England. And he then taught both in England and in Canada and became known as a premier theologian and lecturer there in the middle 1800s. He was a smart guy. But he is most well known for writing a simple hymn about a profound theological subject. And it is the hymn that we just sang, Breathe on Me, Breath of God which is a hymn that teaches us about the third person of the Trinity, the third member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I don't even think the hymn even mentioned the Holy Spirit. It didn't even use the word spirit, and, and, and you'd be right. Uh, the hymn, Breathe on Me, Breath of God, does not use the English word for Holy Spirit in any verse. So then how can the hymn be about the Holy Spirit. Well, that's where we have to go back to the hymn writer, Edwin Hatch. His goal in writing the hymn, Breathe on Me, Breath of God, was to provide a way to teach children and lay people in the church some profound theological truths regarding the Holy Spirit. So in order to do that, he used simple words and language within the hymn to describe the Holy Spirit's work in the life of of a believer. When uh, Edwin Hatch first published the hymn, he gave it the, ti- the, the, the title Spiritus Dei, which is Latin for Spirit of God, making it clear what the hymn was about. Uh, so you see, when the New Testament writers wrote about the Holy Spirit, they used the Greek word uh, pronounced pneuma for spirit. And the word pneuma also means breath, breath, or wind. Therefore, in the hymn, breathe on me, breath of God, the breath of God is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, which gave life to the first man, Adam, when God breathed into him the breath of life. And of course, that also pointed forward in the Bible to the giving of spiritual life that the Holy Spirit gives to all those who are born again through faith in Christ Jesus. So that is the work of the breath of God that the first verse of Hatch's hymn describes. And then the second verse describes the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure, until my will is one with thine to do and to endure. So that's also the work of the Holy Spirit, to work through his word to make people, people of God, holy. And as we return to focusing on our statement of faith, we have come to article number six in our statement of faith, um, which is focused on the breath of God, that is, the Holy Spirit. And for our, our two sermons on the Holy Spirit, I selected these two paragraphs here in John chapter 16, in the middle of what's known as the farewell discourse 
in the Gospel of John, where the Lord Jesus, on his last night before he is crucified, explained the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. So these passages in John don't cover everything that our statement of faith declares about the Holy Spirit, but it does highlight particularly a couple of lines in our statement of faith. That is, that the Holy Spirit, in all that he does, glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at that mainly next week. And he convicts the world of its guilt. That's our subject this morning. And then also in our statement of faith, it says how the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers believers for Christ-like living and service. And we'll hear about that in our text both this morning and next week as well. So our main theme then for this passage, John 16, 5 through 11, is that the Lord Jesus empowers the witness of his people through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now it's important to remember the context of this passage. Again, it is appropriately named the Farewell Discourse because the main theme of the teaching of chapters 14 through 16 in John is that Jesus is going away. Jesus revealed to his, to his disciples that he was departing here. And it begins back in John 14 with Jesus telling the disciples that he is going away in order to prepare a place for them. And now here in verse 5 of John 16, Jesus informs the disciples of where he is going. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me. I'm going to him who sent me. And this news, of course, is troubling to the disciples. That is why at the beginning of chapter 14, Jesus acknowledged that. He acknowledged that it's going to be troubling to them. And so he said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. So the purpose of our paragraph here in John 16 is to show the disciples and us why it is good that Jesus was going away from them. Why is this to their advantage? So first of all, verses 5 through 7, we're going to see the present absence of Jesus is good news. But now, this is verse 5, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go I will send him to you. Next Sunday, the Kansas City Chiefs will play in the Super Bowl for the first time in 50 years. Imagine that. I'm not 50 years old yet. I'm getting pretty close. But the Chiefs have never been to the Super Bowl in all the years that I've been alive and watching football. So it's kind of a big deal. Uh, I've never uh, been a big Chiefs fan, but they are the local team here, so, you know, kind of pulling for them, I guess, as uh, maybe you are as well. Uh, they are in the Super Bowl for one main reason. That is their quarterback, Patrick Mahomes. Um, he, he is probably the greatest quarterback in professional football right now. He got them there. This guy's talent is, is unmatched. Uh, now, they have other talented players, but none are as talented or as important to their success as he is. That's clear if you've seen any of their games. Now just imagine if tomorrow morning you wake up and you hear the news headline for the day that Patrick Mahomes, starting quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, has decided 
that he's not going to play in the Super Bowl. And, and, and he's leaving the team. Imagine how that kind of surprising news would fall on Kansas City's fan base. How they would respond to that happening. Or, or even their team hearing that. Or their coaching staff. It would be devastating. How could they hope to be successful in the Super Bowl, the biggest game of their lives, without their leader? Without the man who got them there? When the context of our passage, the, the disciples are experiencing something very similar to that. They were greatly troubled at what Jesus was telling them here in these verses. They, they had put all of their hope in him. They had left everything to follow Jesus. They were depending upon Jesus for everything, and here he was telling them that he is going to leave them and that they couldn't come with him. To make matters even worse, Jesus told them just before verse 5 that they should not at all expect things to be very easy for them after he leaves. No, quite the contrary, things are going to get much more difficult for them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16, just a few verses up. It says, they meaning the religious leaders of the day, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So that's why in verse 5, Jesus says that the disciples were somewhat speechless. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, it's not because they weren't curious about where Jesus was going, and it's definitely not because they didn't have any questions. They were responding to what Jesus had just said in much the same way as we would respond to sitting in an exam room in a medical clinic and having the doctor tell us, he got the test results back, and unfortunately, it's cancer. It's well advanced. It's stage four. And the chances are not good. And then the next thing he says is, do you have any questions? And you're like, ah. I'm just stunned. You, you can't believe what you just heard. And it's, it's very hard to process at that moment. That's how the disciples are feeling. They're going to put you out of their synagogues. Anyone who kills you will think that they're serving God. It's going to happen. That's what's going to come. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. You'll no longer have me here anymore. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But then Jesus tells them that it's actually better for them that he goes away. That, that it will actually be to their advantage. How could it be to their advantage to have Jesus leave them? And Jesus gives the explanation, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, Jesus is, is going away, but he will not leave them alone. He will send 
the helper to them. So, so what we can figure out right away about this helper is that he must be a pretty incredible person if it would be to the advantage of the disciples to have him rather than Jesus to remain with them. Now, this wasn't, wasn't the first time Jesus mentioned the helper in his farewell discourse. If you turn back to chapter 14, I encourage you to, back to chapter 14 and verses 15 through 17, we're going to look there what this says about the helper. So this is Jesus again teaching his disciples. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. In other words, he won't leave you. When he comes, he won't leave you. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the helper that Jesus and God the Father sent to his disciples is here mentioned as the spirit of truth, this Holy Spirit. Helper is also translated as advocate or comforter or counselor. It may have one of those titles in your translation. But, but, but I think that the key word here for us that describes just who this is is actually the word that comes before helper in verse 16. That is he is another helper. He's another helper. Another in the sense of another helper, just like the helper that you've already had. Now, I'm a baseball fan, and here we are in the middle of winter, and I am really missing watching baseball. And the first, the first spring training game for my team is just 27 days away. Not that I'm keeping track or anything. But when you watch a Major League Baseball game, sometimes... Uh, and it happens actually quite often, the batter will swing at an inside pitch and the ball will hit the narrowest part of the wooden bat and the bat will break. The bat will, will crack. It'll be unusable. So the batter will then be in need of another bat. And the bat boy, his job is to bring him another bat, just like the one he was using before. He must not bring him one that weighs more than his other bat or is lighter than his other bat because the batter needs one just like he was using before. When he asks for another bat, he means one just like the one that he was using before. And that is the same sense that the word for another here is used in verse, in verse uh, 16. This helper will be another helper like the helper that they had in Jesus. Jesus was God in their midst. The helper will be God in their midst. The helper is the Holy Spirit who will come, as Jesus says here, will be in you. He will indwell in them. And this is good news because he is the Holy Spirit. He will be able to indwell and empower the followers of Jesus as they take the gospel message of salvation throughout the world. Jesus is, again, the embodied Son of God. He is, he is God in the flesh. He's embodied. He still is embodied in heaven. He could only be with the disciples in one location at one time. He could not go with each of them when they went out two by two to all areas of, of Galilee to preach the gospel. But through the Holy Spirit, 
God can now be with and empower all of his people throughout the world, no matter where they are, all at the same time. It is amazing to think about how even this morning, as we gather together, we know that believers are gathering together in Norfolk, 12 miles away, and they're gathering together in Omaha and in Lincoln and way out in in, 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 in Shadron, but, but, but of course that's not all. I mean, last night, last night when you were getting ready for bed, or at least when you should have been getting ready for bed, my niece's church, my niece's church in the Philippines, in, in Subic Bay, Philippines, they met for their worship service last night on the other side of the world, because of course it's Sunday morning there. And the Holy Spirit was there empowering her pastor to preach the gospel, and calling people to faith and repentance. And then a few hours later, my friends John and Carrie and their children, they gathered together in their small church family in Salala, Oman, and the helper was there with them, empowering their prayers, empowering their singing within a city where there are very few believers. The Spirit's at work there empowering Christ's people to do the work of ministry. And, and then a few hours later, the Holy Spirit was once again drawing my friends, Carrie and Tom and, and Dave and, and Katrin together along with their families in Innsbruck, Austria. And it, he was empowering their pastor to preach the gospel there. And he is at work living in their hearts as they minister to young people on the streets of Innsbruck, telling them, about Jesus. So it is to our advantage that Christ finished his mission on the earth and returned to the one who sent him. That's what that phrase implies. He's returning to the one who sent him, so he must have completed his mission. So that now the age of the Spirit could begin on the earth. The time spoken of by the prophets has begun. Prophet Joel says this, Joel 2, 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the time we're in. That's what's going on right now because of the Spirit. Secondly, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is one of convicting the world of its guilt. We see that in verses 8 through 11 here. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, these verses are, are fairly direct in explaining what the Holy, work of the Holy Spirit is going to be. Look at verse 8 again. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He will do this, Jesus says. It has been determined we are assured here by the Lord, the Holy Spirit will indeed convict the world of its guilt before God. 
That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Lord provides some detail to what he means in verses 9 through 11, which aren't exactly as easy to understand as we would like it to be. I mean, in verse 9, he says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, and we'd expect him to, to mention one or two, or maybe even a list of sins that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of. It wouldn't take long for us to think you know, the Holy Spirit sure could convict some people that, that we know of, of, of their specific sins. But that's not what he says. He, he doesn't give a list of sins here. He just simply says, because they do not believe in me. In other words, the sin that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of relates directly with what they think of Jesus. It deals directly with him. Which, of course, is something that, that we know our culture doesn't like us to talk about. And how can we be so narrow-minded to think it all depends on Jesus? But in the Gospel of John, Jesus emphasizes over and over again just how important it is to think rightly about who Jesus is and to respond to Jesus appropriately. And if we don't, we will face condemnation. We will be lost eternally. Now, relating to what he says here in verse 9, get back to verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, let's just scoot back in our Bibles to John 8, turn back to John 8 and verse 24. Again, this is a theme throughout the Gospel of John. We see this in several places where belief in Jesus is key. Belief in Jesus is key. Salvation is eternal life. And if you don't have that, then you don't have eternal life. You'll be condemned. So John 8, 24 says this, I told you that, that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is Jesus speaking uh, to some uh, religious leaders here, confronting them convicting them of their sin. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So it's safe to say that thinking rightly about Jesus is the most important matter of life and death that there is for you, as well as for everyone else. Sin here is, is not believing that Jesus is who he said he was. And that is who faithful Christians claim that he is, the Son of God, Israel's Messiah, the only Savior that there is from our sins, the one mediator between God and man. He is the King. He is Lord. And if you don't believe in him like that, or if you say that you believe in him, but then don't really ever listen to what he has to say, or do what he has to say, or don't ever respect what he says by repenting of your sin and then committing to obey what he says, well then, as Jesus said, you will die in your sins. He is the only sacrifice for sins that God has provided. And if you don't look to him as your Savior and Lord, if that's who he is, then you will die in your sins. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin by proclaiming 
Jesus as the only Savior. And if you don't believe in him, you will remain guilty of your sin. To believe in Jesus is to be saved from sin, to have your sins forgiven. To not believe in Jesus, then, is to remain in your sin and to perish forever in sin. The world's unbelief leaves it in a cursed condition, leaves it doomed forever, unless they turn and believe. Verse 10 says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Now again, righteousness is, is being in a right relationship with God. God declaring you to be right with him. And all true righteousness is, again, connected to Jesus. When Jesus was on the earth, when he was engaged in his ministry, the world was able to witness what true righteousness actually is. It was something that they had never really seen before, at least not in as pure of a form as Jesus displayed to them in his life. And most people hated him for it. The righteousness of Jesus exposed the sin of everyone else. I mean, do you remember uh, what, what Peter told Jesus just after Jesus had told him to cast his nets onto the other side of the boat after they had been out all night long fishing and hadn't caught anything? Peter obeyed the Lord, and they cast their nets on the other side of the boat, and all the fish in the sea rushed into those nets. They had never witnessed anything like that before, and immediately Peter's response was to fall on his face before Jesus, and and he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Jesus convicts the world of righteousness just by being who he is. But in John 16, he was about to depart and go to the Father, and they would see him no longer. They would be left without an example of true righteousness. Therefore, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit. And he will convict the world of righteousness. He will reveal to the world how much they fall short of the righteousness that God requires. But remember what they did to Jesus, the righteous one. Again, the world doesn't like to be shown what true righteousness is. The world rejects the righteousness of God and instead decides for itself what righteousness is. That's what the world does. That's a big part of what was going on in Washington this past week, wasn't it? Two different political parties deciding for for themselves what is righteous and what isn't. And then on Friday in Washington, we had the March for Life. Tens of thousands attended the event to protest the killing of unborn children in our country. I read uh, well over half of the thousands that were there were young people under the age of 30. Many people took notice of that. But there are also abortion rights protesters there as well, and they were declaring how righteous their position is. We need to realize the way they see it, there's only one righteous way when it comes to abortion, and that is to give the mother the right to choose whether or not they want to continue with the pregnancy. In their understanding, that is righteousness. 
And if you don't fall in line with that, then you are wrong. We've also been told by the media in Hollywood that righteousness is the acceptance and promotion of almost any kind of alternative lifestyle when it comes to one's sexuality or gender preference. And if you don't fall in line with their righteousness, with what they believe to be righteous, you will be held accountable for it. You will pay. You see, without God speaking into this world, the world will never be made aware of just how far off it is. Without God revealing his righteousness through the Holy Spirit speaking his word through his church, the world will be completely lost. The Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of righteousness since Jesus has gone to the Father. So just don't expect the world to appreciate hearing what the Holy Spirit says in his word regarding righteousness. But that is what has to happen. For the Holy Spirit to convict the world of righteousness, the church has to proclaim what his word says is righteous. And he will also convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. There in verse 11. Satan, or the devil, is called the ruler of this world in the New Testament. That is, he is the ruler of this world order that is opposed to God. The world that has rejected its creator and refuses to submit to God's law. That's the world here. Satan is known as the ruler of this world because he was the first to rebel against God's authority over him. And he then tempted humanity to also reject God's authority in the garden. For everyone who follows his way encompasses what is known as the world in the Gospel of John. And it says here that the ruler of this world is judged. He is judged. He already stands condemned. And if he is judged, then all the world that follows his way of rebelliousness, they are judged with him. And the Holy Spirit's work is to reveal to the world that that is the case. That's actually reality. If you will not repent and submit to the real king, that is King Jesus, then you are judged along with the one that you are following. You will be condemned along with him and you'll be cast into the lake of fire, which the Bible says is reserved for the devil and his angels. That is the role of the Holy Spirit, to come and convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, to reveal the truth of how far we fall short of God's righteousness and how because of that, we are condemned. Unless we turn and believe and Jesus, and submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus in faith. So the church must depend upon God the Holy Spirit to make disciples. That's what we see here in this passage. Probably the greatest example that Scripture gives us for what this work of the Holy Spirit looks like in convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, it's found in Acts chapter 2. If you're not familiar with Acts chapter 2, then that is your homework assignment. Go and read Acts 2. In fact, read Acts 1 and 2 today or tomorrow or whenever you can in the next few days. For in Acts 2, we see all those who believed in Jesus 
were there empowered by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost was this great religious uh, feast day in Jerusalem. So there are many, many people there. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the church with power, and they all begin to preach the gospel, and they do so in different languages, languages that they were not trained in before. Many of the Jews who had traveled to Jerusalem for this great feast, uh, they, were, they were hearing God's word spoken to them in their native language. They, they couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it was happening. It was, it, was, it was the most incredible thing that they'd ever witnessed. And then the apostle Peter got up, and he addressed the whole crowd, and he proclaims God's word to them. He actually expounds God's word to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Peter called out the sins of the people, how they had fallen short of God's righteousness because they had been among those who called for the crucifixion of God's Son. They had rejected God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter was there declaring that God had raised him from the dead. And we find what happened then to the crowd in Acts 2, verse 37. It says there, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. In other words, they were under the heavy conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be given spiritual life. You'll be raised from the dead as well. The church led by Peter spoke the gospel to the crowd, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and many people heard, and many people believed, and they were convinced of their sin and unbelief, and they repented and were born again. They were saved from God's condemnation through the work of the Holy Spirit speaking through the church. And friends, that continues to happen today in much the same way. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts the world of their sin and their guilt. And he does it through the church, through those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit, that is, all of us who are born again believers. We have the very words of the Holy Spirit here. We have the scriptures And when we speak these words to the world, to those who are currently living in rebellion to God, in unbelief, the Holy Spirit empowers our witness and brings conviction upon those in the world who hear his word. Don't expect anything to happen if you don't proclaim his word. That's not how the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He speaks through his word to do that. So we must depend upon his word as we proclaim the gospel to others. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us depend upon the Holy Spirit to do this work. We must use his words. We must not shrink away from sharing the very words of God with others, even even reading God's word with them. For these are the words of God, the Holy Spirit, and he uses his word to bring conviction upon the hearts of unbelievers. And of course, we must pray. Oh, we must pray. 
Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to work through us to bring conviction on the hearts of those who still remain in unbelief. We must pray that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see and to recognize their need for forgiveness, their need for righteousness, and to see that Jesus Christ is their only hope of salvation. So let's pray. And let's share his words regarding sin and righteousness and judgment, for that is the way the Holy Spirit will work through us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by your word, and I ask you, Lord, for your grace to bear fruit in our lives this week and this coming year, that we may be empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim your word, and that we would see the conviction of the Spirit fall upon those we share your word with upon those we pray for. Help us, Lord. Empower us to do this. In the name of Jesus, amen.